Turn to Isaiah chapter 46. And I am going to read actually a little bit before from 22 of the previous uh, chapter 45. So 45, 22, I'm going to read down through verse 5 of chapter 46. So beginning in Isaiah 45, verse 22, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Bel has bowed down. Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They stooped over. They have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from birth, and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, or I have made you, could be another translation. I have made you, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. To whom would you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we would be alike? Let's pray. Father, again, we pray for the Spirit of God to lead us and guide us and to encourage us with Your Holy Word. There is none like You, Lord. We confess and proclaim. You are God and You alone. And all the other gods and all the other religions that men create and make are false, are futile, and they with their worshipers will one day bow and swear allegiance to You and to You alone. We believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. And then the precious promises you have here for your people. May we get them into our souls indelibly. Please, we pray, they would be, they would be branded upon our minds and our hearts that we would have encouragement here this morning. Your people would be encouraged to press on in these promises and, and you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to tell you right off the bat by way of introduction that you know, verse 4 got to me this week when I was reading it and encouraged me. And, uh, you know, I kept going back and forth as to what I was going to do this Sunday. And I said, you know, let me, let me settle on this. And so I did. I'm glad I did. I spent some time uh, studying this verse and some of the verses before in the context and Isaiah in general. And, and it was a blessing. But we're not going to get to it right away, but I want you to know that's the burden of the sermon. It's verse 4, so like stay tuned because we're going to get there. 
And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not a shock or a surprise that, that uh, by and large, brethren, we are an aging congregation. We are, many of us, in the graying years. We're getting there quickly. Pastor Jeff Smith, he's so funny from down in Montville. Every time I used to go down to the conference, he was always shocked that I, I still didn't have a lot of gray hair. He hasn't seen me in a while. It's, it's starting to, to come through, especially in the goatee. But we're an aging congregation. And there are certain experiences, certain thoughts, certain things we anticipate, certain difficulties that are peculiar to people when they age. And, and as I think about them and as, as I imagine and, and try to put myself in the shoes of, of parents, of, of friends who are in those years, I, I thought this verse would be very encouraging for all of us, but especially those getting closer or those in the graying years to be encouraged by. I think that's why God gives it to us. I think God understands our weaknesses. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're but dust. He knows the word that we need in each season of our life that's peculiar to the struggles and difficulties and temptations and problems in those seasons. Like the word of God is sufficient whether you're five years old, two years old, or 85 years old. It speaks to you. He provides blessed truths for you. And this is one of those places. But to get there, and if you read the verses before, it's kind of different. Like, what does he mean here? Bell is bowed down, Nebo stoops over. Isaiah, you know, many of the ways that scriptures are communicated, they're often communicated poetically. And, and poetically, you can get a lot of truth by saying very little. And that's what's happening here. Beautiful language. Haley, in his, in his handbook, says of Isaiah, there are no poets that have ever come, that have ever existed. Even Milton and Shakespeare cannot reach the heights of poetic eloquence and beauty that we find in Isaiah. And ultimately, it's not Isaiah. It's God. As you read these verses, as you heard them read, it's as if God is, it's God speaking to us directly through the prophet. This is, this is the poetry of God. This is the way He would speak to encourage us with short verses in a very brief amount of language, a whole ton of truth that we can be blessed by. But what does it mean when he's saying some of these things? So we're going to unpack it a little bit, and hopefully it's going to add more flavor, more context, and more beauty to verse 4. And I think that's what, what will happen. So first of all, we're going to talk about the context. And then we're going to talk about the contrast. And then we're going to talk about the comfort. So you see Pastor Nichols and his spiritual grandson are rubbing off on me. You've got three C's. First of all, the contrast. The only difference is there's a lot under each of these, so <laughs> too bad. We can be our own men, right? The context. Isaiah, who was he? Well, he was specifically a prophet, not to the northern kingdom, but to Judah. And you find this in Isaiah 1.1. I'll just read it for you. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So that was his main area of focus. That was his church, Judah and specifically Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So we know about the time frame in history 
that Isaiah was called to be a prophet and that Isaiah was preaching, and we know the people to whom he was preaching. And we know the specific historical experiences that these people went through that help us understand why he's using some of the references that he's using and why he's speaking the way that he's speaking. Haley says in his handbook, his ministry probably took place around 745 to 695 B.C. During his lifetime, he witnessed the destruction and ruin of the northern kingdom at the hands of the Assyrian armies. There were two waves of Assyrian advance into northern Israel. We read about them in Scripture around 734 and 731 resulting in their utter destruction. A few, a few years later, the Assyrians come back and they advance through 46 walled cities of Judah. So now they're penetrating down into Judah, closer to Jerusalem. They were able to take 46 of these walled cities, bringing away into captivity another 200,000 souls. Getting closer and closer to Jerusalem and Isaiah and the king. You read of the account with Hezekiah and Isaiah of the Assyrians coming to Jerusalem, the city around 701. And with Isaiah's encouragement to pray, the Lord crushed the Assyrian army and sent them back to Assyria never to come back again. Hundreds of thousands perhaps were slain by the angel of the Lord without Israel lifting a finger. Another example of how God saves us, we don't save God. Another example of how we need God, He doesn't need us. Very different, it's very different when you contrast our God and the gods of the nations. Gods of the nations need them to do everything for them. Our God, the true and living God, needs us to do nothing. But pray and seek his face, and a whole army is destroyed. And the king is sent back from where he came, never to set foot or come close to Jerusalem again. And Haley says that in history, that was probably one of the greatest historical things, of course, Isaiah was, was involved in. Haley further points out rightly that Isaiah's, and I quote, whole life was spent under the shadow of threatening Assyrian power. And he himself witnessed the ruin of the entire nation at their hands, except only Jerusalem being spared. Tradition says that Isaiah was killed by King Manasseh. We don't know this for sure. But he was perhaps killed by King Manasseh, that wicked king and maybe was the one spoken of in Hebrews 11.37, where it talks about those of faith of whom the world is not worthy, being sawn in two. He may have been pinned to a board and cut in half for his faithful service to God at the hands of a wicked king. Isaiah, secondly, is called the Messianic prophet. It's not really that hard to know why. Not surprising. The New Testament authors quote Isaiah more than any other Old Testament book. We read in John 12, 41. 
says that Isaiah and of Isaiah, he saw the glory of Christ and spoke of him. He had great privilege in a very dark time in Israel's history. In my own Bible reading, I came across verses like this, just as an example, Isaiah 43, 23b, second part of that, verse 23 of Isaiah 43, where we read, to me every knee will bow, and every tongue will swear allegiance. Where have you heard that before? Paul, Philippians 2.10. Paul tells us, with his Holy Spirit-filled, divine interpretation, explanation of Isaiah 43.23, that's what it is, when he speaks about it in Philippians 2.10, this is the interpretation of this verse, that Isaiah is speaking about Jesus. And he's speaking ultimately about the return of Jesus, the second coming of Christ. And in that day, in the judgment day, when Jesus comes back, everyone who has ever lived will stand before Him, rather, will bow the knee to Him, and with their lips will acknowledge that while I didn't acknowledge it in life, You, Lord Jesus, are Lord. What kind of day is that going to be? when the whole world in unison declares Jesus and recognizes finally Jesus to be the Lord. Now, He is the Lord whether the world recognizes it or not. But we're told through Isaiah, explained to us by Paul, that it's Jesus. He's the one, our Savior, brethren, our King, our Lord. He's the one before whom every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess and swear allegiance. Isaiah got to see events associated with the first coming of Christ and events associated with the second and final coming of Christ. Great privilege. The Messianic prophet. Isaiah prophesied of things that would happen nationally to Israel and to other ancient nations. That's what we're reading of here in 46. But the greatest thing he spoke of, he saw out into the future were things that had to do with the Messiah, Jesus. We all know Isaiah 53. As if Isaiah was standing before the foot of the cross, he describes what he's seeing. No better description of the death of Jesus than in Isaiah, a description that's given 700 plus years before Jesus would die. We have no better description of it than in Isaiah, who lived 800 years before. Not only that, we have no better theological explanation of the cross. He was pierced. Why was Jesus dying on the cross? Why did He die? He was pierced through for our transgressions. You don't know that by just seeing Jesus dying before you. You know that by divine inspiration. 800 years before it happened, the cross work of Christ is being explained perhaps no more accurately than by Isaiah. Why He died, for whom He died. So there would be no question. He died in the place of sinners. He died a substitutionary atonement, a death we deserve. He died in our place, right? 
No more do we have a better theological explanation. Like the spiritual things happening when Jesus died. Behind the scenes, you can't see with the human eye. You can only discern with the soul. You can only have explained to you by God Himself. This is a spiritual, divine explanation as to why Jesus died. And for whom He died. For sinners. Beautiful, messianic chapter. In the chapters leading up to Isaiah 46, God is declaring His uniqueness and how incomparable He is to anything men would call God. That's what God is doing throughout the chapters before the verses we're going to consider. He's literally mocking the gods of the nations. And He's mocking their worshipers. And He's doing it not to make fun of them. Well, He kind of is. But not for their ultimate evil, but for their ultimate good. That they would hear what He's saying about their gods as He's mocking them, and so that they would turn from them. And so that they would turn to Him and be saved, all you ends of the earth. And that's what's happening. And he's speaking of his glory and of his uniqueness and of things that are only characteristic of him who is alone God. Things like this, the ability to tell the future. There is no literature on the face of the planet other than the Bible where we have an accurate interpretation of future events. Nowhere but in Scripture do we find that happening. No God of any religion, of any nation, has ever been able to foretell the future. God alone is able to predict the future because He is the God of the beginning and of the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Everything that's happening in history that will happen in the future is happening according to the predetermined plan of God and according to the decree of God. He knows what's going to happen. He ordained it to happen. And He can tell before it does happen. He alone can do that, brethren. Our God, and that's what He is publicly challenging every other God and every other worshiper of those gods to answer. What say you to that? And then He replies often through it, even at the end of the passage we read, to whom will you compare me? Police. Futile ridiculousness. God is, is somewhat bothered to have, it, to have to explain this because we already know it in our hearts as pastors have been opening up faithfully from Romans 1. Sinners already know they're worshiping false gods. So that's what's happening in these chapters beforehand. Places like Isaiah 45, verse 20. Not sure if I already read that for you folks. Set forth your case, indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Verse 21. Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There's none except me. In the beginning of Isaiah 46, here's the fourth point about the context. God through Isaiah 
predicts the destruction and ruin of another nation called Babylon. You ever heard of it? Yeah. Destruction and ruin of Babylon and their gods, Bel and Nebo. Bel was the supreme deity of Babylon. They built a big ziggurat and put a big tower on it, supposedly, and that tower was dedicated to the god, the false god, Bel. You get glimpses of this in the book of Daniel. Nebo, another one. Many of their names would be patterned after these gods. As you read in Daniel, Belshazzar. Right? How about another big name everyone knows here? The king in Babylon. That Nebuchadnezzar. Right? Neb. There's the god again. One of their great gods that they worship. So he's speaking about the gods of Babylon and their worshipers. And he's predicting their downfall and ruin. And in fact, their captivity. That's what's being described in the first couple of verses. Remember though, when Isaiah is preaching the time frame, we're talking 745 to 695. Babylon was nowhere on the worldwide scene as a nation. Who was dominant in the ancient world at that point in time? Assyria. Assyria was the great threat, and yet Isaiah, God's speaking of Babylon, another nation that would come on the scene, another nation that would exist when? In the past? No, in the future. And he's speaking about the gods they would worship. And he's speaking about their destruction. They will exist, but ultimately they'll fall. Ultimately they'll be brought down. They with their gods will be brought to nothing. Even before they even exist. Even before they're even practical. Even before they're on the scene of history. God's speaking of them and their ultimate demise and destruction. Wouldn't happen for another hundred years, the Babylonian captivity of Judah. And the Medes and Persians wouldn't conquer Babylon for another 150 years after Isaiah's prediction. It's amazing. As if these future events have already happened. He's speaking about them. How is it possible? Because our God, as we've said, knows the end from the beginning. And because of that, He's utterly distinct and holy in this characteristic. And as God, and able to tell the future because He decreed it. He not only speaks about the Medes and the Persians, but of specifically their King Cyrus. He's named by Isaiah. I mean, this is, does this blow your mind? Does this get you excited? Does this encourage you that you're not believing in fairy tales and myths, but that this book is written by the true and living God of heaven and earth, can be believed in, can be standed upon like a rock? This stuff, like, thrills me, brethren. I hope it thrills you too. Speaking of this king by name, who would allow Israel to go back to Jerusalem, Speaking of the, the deportation of the Jews to Babylon, to a nation that doesn't even exist yet, and then speaking of the return from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Yeah, several multitude of events that would happen in the future, he's speaking of as if they've already happened. Verse 44, 20, I'm sorry, Isaiah 44, verse 28, we read, It is I who says of Cyrus, 
He is my shepherd and He will perform all my desire. And He declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundations will be laid. What's He talking about? When Isaiah is preaching, the temple is still in existence. Isaiah ministers to 695. The temple wouldn't be destroyed until 586. But somehow the foundations of the temple would have to be laid again. That wouldn't happen for another 110 years. What is Isaiah speaking of the rebuilding of the temple? He's speaking of the return of Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the temple because Cyrus allowed them to. And how does he speak of this great king Cyrus who destroyed Babylon? You know who the great kings of the earth are to God? They're His servants and His shepherds. I'm going to use Cyrus like a shepherd to bring my people, my sheep, back to Jerusalem someday. That's awesome. That's what the kings of the earth are to God. They are His servants. They do His will and His bidding. He puts it into their heart and they do it. And you can read of that unfolding in the pages of Holy Scripture. It's absolutely amazing and it was spoken of 110 years before it even happened. Even more than that. Incredible. So, beginning of 46, chapter 46, that's what's going on here. Okay, so you got the context. You're excited about the context. At least I'm excited about the context. I can't speak for you. Now let's look at the contrast of our passage. The contrast. Bell has bowed down, verse 1. Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. Things that, you're carry, that you carry are burdensome, a load. What's he talking about in all of this? The passage is all about contrast. Verse 5 tells us this. Right at the end, to whom would you liken me? Make me equal and compare me that we would be alike. The passage is all about contrast. God says to Isaiah, let's talk about the gods of the nations and see how they compare. Better yet, let's talk about the gods of, of a nation not yet worshipped and a nation not yet born. How about that? And while he's doing this, telling the future, telling the future of what would happen to a nation that doesn't exist yet, we're supposed to get the point. Only God can do that, right? I mean, it's, just, it's amazing. He could have looked to the other nations and given examples, but he looks to a future nation that doesn't exist and perhaps future gods that don't even exist. Gods that are yet to be created in the minds of sinful men. Let's talk about them. And the point is supposed to come through pretty powerfully to us. It's amazing. God mocks the gods being worshipped by the nations of Isaiah's day, but also those that would be worshipped during the lives of his great-grandchildren. The fate of those gods will be the fate of all gods and of every person that has existed or will ever exist. Quote, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. And in the end, 
when the dust clears, our God will be the only God standing. And we're on the winning side, aren't we, brother? Nothing to fear. If our God is for us, who can be against us? We're on the winning side. There are no other gods but Him. That's why you kids, I try to teach my kids, you've got nothing to fear if you know God. You don't have to be worried about anybody, anything, any animal, any ghost or figment of your imagination. When you know the Lord, He puts your heart at peace. You don't even have to be afraid of the lightning and thunder. I mean, you could be awed by it. Aren't you awed by it? Of course I am. I used to be terrified, though, of thunder and terrified of lightning. I always used to think it was the judgment day when we got a bad storm coming through. And if that's what God's creation does and we live through it, I mean, what's the judgment going to be like? Terrible, right? But when you come to the Lord, man, you just have a peace. You Literally, all your fears have been stripped. You don't have to be afraid. You can sleep with the lights off. You don't need the lights on. This is what these passages are designed to do. So many things encourage us to have strength because our God is strong. Encourage us to believe because our God is the only God who exists. So it's all about contrast. The second point I would make as we move through this point, contrast of our passage, is the idols of Babylon are described in verse 1. They're brought down and placed by men on the backs of beasts and cattle. What he's describing is the transportation of Babylon's idols on the backs of camels. He's describing Bel and Nebo who were up on a high tower where everyone could see in their temples or wherever and everyone could come and worship them no longer standing but stooped over and bowed because they've been brought down by the conquering nation of Persia. They've been brought low. They've been abased. They've been destroyed, the gods of Babylon, that great nation. The gods who were supposed to be the gods who gave the nations to Babylon are now with their faces towards the backsides of camels being dragged to Persia as booty, loot, and as the spoils of war. Look at your gods now, all stooped over, and being carried by beasts, who quite frankly are annoyed, because they're really heavy. And they're not helping them as they carry them. In other words, your gods, who are dead, are serving as dead weight for the beasts of the Persians. The gods you worshipped. If that's not mocking, I don't know what is. He, God, is treating the gods of Babylon with utter contempt and describing exactly what would happen to them. The things you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. And so maybe there's an allusion there to, you know, these were the gods you used to carry. Now they're a burden for weary beasts. 
In other words, your gods, you had to do everything for them. You had to carve them out, make them, you had to move them around. They can't move, they can't walk. They can't do anything for themselves. You have to do everything for them. And the ones that you carried are now burdensome for the weary beasts. In fact, animals that God created have more value and power than speechless, lifeless idols. It's a picture of utter humiliation. He's showing how contemptible and foolish it is to serve idols and ignore the true and living God. That's the big idea. The idols of men are useless, powerless, because they're lifeless. Another thing here, and by way of contrast, in verse 2, the idols can't save each other. There's a reference here. They stooped over, they have bowed down together. Nebo can't save Bel, and Bel can't save Nebo. They have no power to save each other. And what of their worshipers? One can imagine religious Babylonians. Imagine if you worship these idols. Like you truly believe these were gods. And people do. And this is the sad part about it. Worshiping things that aren't God, but believing they are God and being, being serious about it. Like there's people who are seriously religious today. They're seriously devote followers of their false gods. It, 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 it's, it's sad, isn't it? They are sincere in their faith. They're sincere in their service. So now you see Nebo and Bel carried from the temple to a foreign country. And on the way, you're walking behind them. And you're seeing how they're being treated. And the picture here in verse 2 is that most likely the, the worshipers are trying to rescue them. They stooped over, they bowed down together, they could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. You can see these worshipers saying, Mr. Persian soldier, could you please handle this with more care? This is our God. And you know what the response would be. They're interceding for their gods because their gods can't do anything for themselves. And then God says of the worshipers, they themselves have gone into captivity. Our gods are going, and we're going, and we're seeing our gods treated like this with other contempt. Our whole world has been completely shattered, demolished, and, and there's nothing we can do to stop these wicked Persians from treating our gods the way they're treating them. Could not rescue the burden. The idols of men have become the burdens of beasts. And how ridiculous that your gods must be saved by their worshipers and not the other way around. He concludes in verse 2, These worshipers of idols could not save them or themselves, but both shamefully go into captivity. So before we even get into verses 3-5, through five, we're able to see the utter ridiculousness of worshiping false gods. They are no gods at all. They cannot save. They cannot do anything for others. They can't even save themselves. They can't even do what animals can do, let alone what God can do. Are these the idols? God is engaging men in discussion. You're comparing to me, Bel and Nebel, the great gods of a great worldwide nation. These gods who were brought down to the ground and could do nothing about it. These gods who cannot do what men can do, or even what creatures of the earth can do. 
let alone what I can do? Are these the gods idolaters compare to me? Your gods need you to save them, to carry them, to protect them, and therefore they are no gods at all. This is legitimately true of everything men worship if they're not worshiping the true living God of heaven and earth. You're worshiping someone or something or some experience that you're serving today. People are in the world. And they're hoping it'll bring them joy. Solid joy and lasting treasure. And it always fails to do so because the things men worship including themselves, are not able to take the place of God because they are no gods at all. And here God says, turn, you foolish sinners, from them all to Me, the true and living God, and I'm going to give you wine and honey and lasting, eternal, solid joy that no one can take away from you. Treasure spiritual that you'll have in this life and much more in the life to come. How's that sound? I'm actually able to provide it and do it. All of the imagery here is an illustration of what people in our culture are doing. And it's also a picture of their future, sadly so. Of the utter ruin and felt sense of ruin they're going to experience at the judgment day. There's pictures in Isaiah where before God in judgment, all the idols will literally drop out of men's hands. Everything they've been clinging to, when they stand before the great throne of glory, the great white throne, they're going to realize instantly it's all, it was all wrong. I cannot imagine the felt sense of utter ruin sinners are going to feel. When they realize, uh-oh, what I lived was completely false. Worse than that, it's too late. It's too late. The day of grace is over. And they're going to cry out like we read of in Proverbs 1, one of the most frightening, frightening passages in all of Scripture. They're going to cry out. God's not going to answer. Because today's the day of grace. The comfort. The comfort. It's found in verses 3-5. through Listen to me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth. You see the difference here? You who have been carried by me. Contrast between God carrying and idols being carried. Even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your grain years, I will bear you. I have made you. I will carry you. I will bear you. I will deliver you. God says to His people, listen to me. Speak it to the believing remnant who are God's true people. To encourage them to trust and believe, certainly in Isaiah's day. That believing remnant who have been horrified by hearing of the temple destroyed and having to be rebuilt and would have been horrified to hear of the Babylonian Catholic as if the Assyrian one wasn't bad enough. And the dark days that are ahead for Israel 
He's giving them hope. He's giving them encouragement. If they're true believers, even though the nation's being judged, God's still for you. He's still with you. And he says, first of all, by way of comfort, and we can apply this to ourselves, consider my dealings with you in history. Consider how I've dealt with you since conversion. How I've dealt with you since you were born as a nation. Don't forget your history, Israel. How you came into being. Like you had nothing to do with it. I created you as a nation. You didn't create me as your God. But I saved you and called you and put my name upon you and blessed you and protected you and preserved you throughout your history. All of these signs, all of these examples. And this is illustrated by this beautiful, poetic, short sentence. You have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. And this is true of Christians who've been born again, right? What is God doing? He's describing His relationship to His people in terms of the relationship of not only a mother, but a pregnant mom, a pregnant woman, and a caring mother, right? I have borne you, carried you in my womb. Mothers, you say that to your sons and daughters sometimes, right? I carried you. All those months, I forfeited bikinis for you. Now, not that you would want to wear a bikini, but you get the point, right? What my body's been through for you. I'm this way because of you. Whatever, however, you, you know. I bore you, God said. Like a pregnant woman, there's her son or daughter. I carried you before you could even see anything. While you were being fearfully and wonderfully made. When you were vulnerable, being created and fashioned in your mother's womb as a nation, as my nation. We can understand this imagery of the nation of Israel calling them from Abram. Calling him, first of all, out of darkness into light and making him a follower and a believer. God of glory appeared to him in Mesopotamia. And when he did, Abram was born. He was born again. When he saw the glory of God, he repented. He believed in God and he served God every day since. And it was, it was the first day of his existence. God made him. That's why God could say that. He made him a follower. He made him a worshiper. Took him and he made him his own. And from Abram, from this very early incubating state in Israel history, he had sons and the promised sons. And from there, this group of people go down to Egypt. And I always envision Egypt as the womb within which God brought forth the nation. It was there that they multiplied from dozens of people to literally millions within the protective womb of Egypt, who in those days, Egypt was the worldwide empire, national, international powerhouse. Nobody messed with Egypt. Right? And it was there that this little nation, God's wisdom, just grew and grew and grew. And He made them. He says, consider your history. I carried you. I made you, protected you. 
You did nothing to save yourselves. I saved you. How'd you get out of Egypt? Let's not forget the plagues, the miracles. I brought you through the Red Sea. Again, a picture of birth, right? I mean, they're coming through the Red Sea. It's parted. Here comes the nation on dry ground. But when they get through, here comes Pharaoh and all of the army of Egypt, and in a fell swoop, destroy Israel saved. Israel saved. Did this for you. And we quickly see the contrast between God and the idols. Unlike the idols of the nations, must be carried and protected by their worshipers. I carried you. I have protected you, my people. You've been like a dependent baby, and I brought you forth and made you a people who were not. The evidences of God's protection of His people through history were abundant and numerous. The amount of times Israel was saved, protected, delivered, all through the pages of this book we read of it. Born by me, carried from the womb. Consider my promise for your future. Verse 4, there it is. Even to your old age, I will be the same. Do you think I'm going to leave you now? As you get into the graying years, not a chance. Even to your old age, I'll be the same, and even to your graying years, I will bear you. Now wait, we still have to be born like kids, even as 75-year-old people? Yeah. We still need God like we did when we were little spiritual babies? Yeah. God does not raise us and carry us from being babies, spiritual, only to let us go when we come of age to kind of do it on our own. We're described in this passage as beings. Humans are described as beings that are eternally dependent and needy. As kids who never grow up, who never leave the home, who never become independent. See, we raise our kids to be independent, but it's kind of a wrong concept. I mean, I get what we mean by that, but never raise your kids with the understanding that they are independent beings. They're completely dependent all the time. In fact, we never grow up and we never leave our father's house. We never don't need the protection of our father's care. We're always living as the children of God under the all-seeing eye of God on his property, in his house, eating his food, wearing his clothes, protected by his roof. Isn't that a good thing? <laughs> That's a great concept. We're not a people that need God when little, but not when old. In fact, the older we get, the more we often feel our need of God more acutely. Isn't it crazy? The progress of a human being from birth to death. At some point in our lives we grow up and we think we don't need anything. But that's a very short time frame and then we, we begin to feel acutely that we have tons of needs. A lot of needs we didn't anticipate. And now I have more needs than I ever thought I would have. And you have an intense period of need when you're a kid and then you have an intense period of need often 
in those graying years. It's just reality. And so we begin to feel our need more of him when we enter into the graying years. Here God says that I've carried you, my children, and I'm carrying you. And I'm committed to carrying you, providing for you, and caring for you until you're old and gray. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. You're always going to live life in the shadow of your shepherd. I'm right there, and I'm with you. When you feel alone, be reminded of this. God's not left you. He's with you. When you feel your need, my older friend, physical, emotional, intellectual, can't do the things you once did. God's not forsaken you. God has not left you because you can't do the things you once did. He's still carrying you. He's still close to you. He's committed to be this for His people. I will be the same. Isn't that encouraging? I'm always going to be here for you. Consider the contrast and emphasis of God's words. I carry you. I, I, I. I'm not a God that needs to be carried. Don't get your understanding of me confused by what the world does and how the world lives. Attention world, the stock market's doing good, but your 401k is not your ultimate source of blessing, safety, and security. God is. Attention world, other people aren't your ultimate source of security and blessing. God is. Whatever it is they're living for. God alone is the one who is able to carry, who is able to protect. He's the only God of heaven and earth. Consider the manner of God's care for His people. I mean, it already comes through to us in the way He describes His commitment and as, as a pregnant woman and caring mother. He describes the way He carries us. Like a loving mother does. Carefully. Lovingly carrying her newborn baby. Right? When you have a newborn baby, a granddaughter, a son or daughter. I remember, you know, when little Kara Lee was born last year, and we're, the, my kids, you know, who don't hold babies all the time, we're putting the baby into their arms, and, you know, you're walking over carefully, and you're, you're placing it gently, and little Jack and Justice and Julian, and they're, and they're really cautious, and they're carefully, tenderly. This is the description of how God is saying He carries us. He's not dangling us by a foot like I carried my little piglets to the pen a couple months ago. Squealing all along, a little dog, I got him from biting up on the, trying to get to the pig's nose, and the pig's squealing. He's not having a good time. Okay? But if you have another way to carry a pig, let me know. But carried by the leg, no. You're carried like a newborn, nestled in the everlasting, loving arms of God. Awesome. Feed those babies regularly, frequently. Change them so they don't get uncomfortable, so they're always clean. You pay attention to them. Man, that's how God cares for His people. You hold them. Sometimes you just need to pray, Lord, come down and hold 
my heart. Assure me that you're still with me. That's what holding a baby does. It's the assurance that mom is right there. The baby can feel the constriction of the arms. And it's a communication spiritual to that baby that dad, mom, is not is here to protect. I can sleep sound and not have a worry. And sometimes you've got to pray like that. Lord, would you do this for me? What I did for my kids. I, I just, you know, sometimes we don't need words. We just need a hug. We just need to be held by all the humans, certainly by God. Communication of, of peace, of rest, of a sense of well-being. It's all connected to that. This is how He cares for us. The unchangeableness of His care, even to your old age. It's continued. This is the point of the passage that warmed my heart. The graying years. We feel experience real decline. We intensely feel our vulnerability and weakness, pain, less strength, more confusion, less clarity, more physical issues to deal with than we had before, more inward struggle, discouragement, depression than we ever battled. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. How about death? That's not an easy thing to look forward to. As we get older, we're not dumb. We realize we're getting closer to the day of death. We don't know what it's going to look like. We don't want to die. We weren't meant to die. We weren't created to die. So we get closer to death, and what happens? We, we get afraid. We get worried, don't we? I mean, don't you, as you get older? A little bit? I mean, we all know we don't have to be. We all understand that. But human experience, even as Christians, you know, we don't look forward to it. You know, Jesus did not want to go to the cross. He said and prayed, if there be another way, Lord, let this cup pass. Like he had fear. It wasn't simple to have fear for Jesus. Prayed about it, and God strengthened him. But we have fears too. That's reality. You know, Christian experience is not an intellectual thing you read in a book. Well, yeah, this is how you are, but this is how you should be, so you know, get over it. No, please. That's not being human. So we feel these things. It's not easy. Shadow of death gets darker and darker. We get closer and closer to it. I don't know about you, but to me, it's not easy to live with the thought that death is really, really close. But what a blessing to know, though, that's the case. God is closer. That He's carrying you. What a blessing to know that though you're growing older and can do less for God, God never ceases to do less for you. That He is committed to His promise to never leave us or forsake us. Remember these words when you get discouraged in the graying years. I made you, I'll carry you, bear you, deliver you. Unlike the gods of this world. He can complete the work He began in us until the day of Christ Jesus. What a blessing to know this. That though we be graying, aging, the valley of the shadow of death, it gets darker. Like you can see it getting closer. Remember Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. He leads me. He's with me. He'll help me. So brethren, listen to the Word of God and the challenge of God. And do not ever think God is like the gods of this world or even the gods that some, a God that you imagine Him to be at times. He's not impotent and He's not unloving. He's the very opposite of impotence and the very opposite of being unloving. And I would just say a closing word. I know I'm a little longer. But if you don't have the Lord, unbeliever, 
If you're not serving the Lord Jesus Christ and you know who you are out there, I know many of you are believers and I'm not trying to say that you're not. I know that many of you are. But you know if you're an unbeliever or not. You know in your heart. If you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ or if you're serving something else or someone else which is false and in the end will leave you in utter despair. Think about the experience described here in the beginning of the chapter. It will not be unlike the experiences of men and women. One day on their way to hell. You picture these poor people from Babylon walking to Persia, having been utterly defeated in battle. A life of slavery, bondage, and hardship is before them. No freedom, no rights, no end in sight. They're going to live at the mercy of their cruel enemies and conquerors. As they walk, they look over at the camels carrying the statues of their gods, and as they look at those idols, they say to them, Where are you now? Where is your power to save? You are a burden and inconvenience to the backs of animals, and you are a burden and a weight upon my soul. And sinners in hell will live with the burden and weight of the gods they served in life. And those gods will weigh them down and will torture them for all eternity. You live for me. Ha ha. You could have lived for God. Don't be among them. Right now, in your chair, Look to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, save me from worshiping everything else to worship you alone. Forgive me of my sins for worshiping anything else but you. What was I doing? Confess your sins. Say, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner, and he will save you. Look to Jesus and ask him to save you. And he says, none will go away unsaved. None will be disappointed. He will save all who call upon him. You do that right now. You do not go out those back doors until you know you're right with God. You do not want to be among those who live with the weight of serving false idols on your heart and conscience for all eternity, and it just tortures them. Don't be among them. Look to the Lord and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and pray your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name.